Hola, welcome back to another great episode of Diferente. I'm so excited about all of the support and all of the reviews that we have received so far. They're very encouraging, and I really appreciate that you continue to listen, continue to tune in every week. But also, I want to ask you a very special favor. Please, 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 please share Diferente with a friend, family member, frenemy, ex-girlfriend, teacher, whatever, whoever you think will benefit or love our content please share it with them because that's one of the best ways to get people to tune in and listen and also join us on this amazing journey that we've started together. So post a link to Diferente on your social media profile, or you can also text it to someone. You can text the whole show to them, or you can text just this episode if that's what you want. It's so easy to share the love and share the show with other people. And it makes such a big difference. Thank you again for your support. And now let's get on with the show. There once was a company called Cambridge Analytica. You might have heard of it and the fact that they were hired by the Trump campaign in 2016. According to the New York Times, the firm harvested private information from the Facebook profiles of more than 50 million users without their permission. After they extracted this data, the company created psychographic profiles on voters so that they could target their ads in a very specific kind of way. And that helped the campaign influence voters who were indecisive or middle of the road. This obviously led to a huge worldwide debate about privacy and how our information should be handled by the companies that collect it. Because like it or not, we have put all of our business out there in the name of connectivity. There's no such thing as complete privacy anymore. Even Alexa suddenly turns on when the room is totally quiet. Weird. My guest in this episode is Eric Diaz. He's a partner and CFO of two social media analytics companies. We talked about the importance of finding balance as an entrepreneur, what's happening with our privacy as social media continues to evolve, as well as the importance of diversity and inclusion programs in corporate America. Yes, that's still a thing we need. Let's get started. Bienvenidos. Welcome to Diferente. My name is Maribel Quesada-Smith. I'm an expert at questioning everything who wants to bring more color into your life. I'll be coming to you every week with a little humor and a mountain of passion to share with you experiences and lessons in life, culture, creativity, and business that will inspire all of us to explore different perspectives. Don't be surprised if you find yourself motivated to shake things up. That's known to be a side effect of the Diferente life, and it's contagious. Now let's get to it. Eric, welcome to Diferente. Hey, how are you? Thank you for having me. I'm doing great. Thank you so much for making time for us. So tell us a little bit about your background. What's your story? Sure. 2004, uh, graduated Ohio State, decided I wanted to go into business. I got a job with a big Fortune 500 company to get experience. and It was uh, Staples. So I started working around the country with Staples, kind of learned the ropes with them for about four, almost five years and got my MBA along the way and then became an entrepreneur in, at the end of 2008 and have been an entrepreneur ever since. Are your parents entrepreneurs or how did you become a business owner? Why did you want to do that? Well, it wasn't necessarily from my family. My family's always been in the education field, always professors. I was always interested in what, what they were doing, always interested in uh, furthering my education, but just knew that when I was young, I really had like an entrepreneurship bone. I, I really just felt like I was the kid that always was having the baseball card sale, lemonade stand, just things like that. Like I was always trying to figure out a way that 
I can make a profit. And it was really fun. So I learned a lot of things when I was young. And then I guess through my mentors, I realized that I couldn't become an entrepreneur immediately and that it generally would take time and you have to figure out a trade, have to go deep into an area and kind of learn how to do a business and then figure out how to, I guess, do it on your own. So that's kind of how that all transpired. So when you came out of college, I remember this because we met, I think, around the time that you had started your first business. When you came out of college and you started working for Staples, was there a point that made you say, you know what, I think I really want to just do my own thing? Sure. Yeah. So I was fortunate enough with Staples that I got to work for them almost five years and I was in like a rotational, like a management training program where they really taught me everything there was to know about the Staples supply chain. During that time, they were actually doing major growth internationally, especially in China. And I actually had the opportunity, since I'd already done this this management training program, I knew a lot already about the supply chain. And they, and a lot of people don't realize this, but Staples doesn't just import goods from China. They actually sell product. They have stores. They have delivery in China and major cities like Beijing, Shanghai, etc. So I was actually sent out there in 2007, 2008 and spent a year out there just uh, using what I had learned and then helping to set up a new, just like an American style warehouse in the outskirts of Shanghai. But during that time, uh, I was able to save enough money that when I returned back to the United States and finished my MBA, I had enough money where I, I really could start myself. And I had enough where I could basically not make any money for a year and I could still be okay. And that was the opportunity, even though that Staples was great and I, I love everything that they've ever, you know, done for me. I still click my easy button, but I, uh, I really was always meant to be an entrepreneur and I, I kind of took that opportunity to become an entrepreneur after that. So That's such a great story because I feel like a lot of people think that entrepreneurship is just an easy thing that you just happen to wake up to one day. And obviously, you know, that's not the case. I mean, you mentioned that you saved enough money to where you knew that you would be okay if you didn't make any money for about a year. When you first started your business, were there any moments where you were like freaking out? Like, oh my God, how am I going to pay the bills in two months or next month? <laughs> yeah, this morning. No, just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> but no, uh, there many times, many times. Like, I think the, the thing that helped me is I, I was realistic right up front. I, I had heard from other people that were entrepreneurs that you should save at least six months worth of reserves. Plan on not making any money for six months because you're just going to figure out you're going to think you know how to make money, but it's going to take a while until you actually really do. Um, so I plan on that. And then I actually planned a little bit ahead. I had 12 months of reserves and that really served me well. I think also along the way, there were times I, I do definitely remember thinking that if a couple months from now, thinking like if this doesn't work out by November, you know, I really have to brush off the resume and go back into the workforce. So that that had definitely happened a couple of times. Earlier on, you know, luckily it hasn't been like that for years, but there was a couple of times it was a little bit, you know, scary like that. Did your family ever worry about you when you first started your business? No, they've always had a lot of confidence in me as far as, you know, what I could do. I would say the last time, kind of a funny story, the last time my, my, my family doubted me was I was 19 and a friend of mine and I wanted to buy a taco truck back at Ohio State campus. And this is before like taco trucks were like... <laughs> before they were... Yeah, it was like yeah. 1999, 2000. And this is before food trucks were a big deal. And we had an idea to start a food truck there. And all I needed was, I think it was like $2,000, which I had. 
And anyway, my family talked me out of investing in the, in the food truck company. And I, I kind of, to this day, regret that I followed their advice. And I, because who knows, I could have been a big name in the food truck biz, but. A big taco king? <laughs> yeah, a big taco king. <laughs> Ray de los tacos, something like that. But you know what, to be honest with you, I don't want to say regret, but I just learned that in the future, if, as long as I do my homework, I'm the one that knows best, not other people that they can give me suggestions and I should listen to them. But I'm still, if I've done my homework and I believe in something, then I should go for it. That's really good advice, actually, because sometimes people can tell you things, but if they haven't actually experienced what you've experienced, then the information that they have is not the same as what you have. And that's that's a very valid point. Right. Now, we all have our moments of frustration in business. So I know I sometimes wish I could turn it off after 5 p.m. and not think about work at all outside of Monday through Friday. But then when you're running stuff, it's very difficult to unplug. So two things that I want to ask you about. What's your least favorite part about being an entrepreneur? And how do you find balance between work and life? Great question. So the things I, I hate about an entrepreneur is honestly wearing all the different hats. I am technically a CFO and I have a finance MBA, but... To be honest with you, the, the financial piece is not something that I really have a passion for anymore. I really am much more interested in the business development or marketing side and kind of like the idea generation. That type of thing is really much more fascinating to me. But basically, the way we've always worked is we will do things ourselves until we can afford to pay somebody else to do it. And over time, we've done, there's a lot of things we've been able to outsource, but there's some things to this day that... I still have to do that. You know, unfortunately, I don't really enjoy doing them, but they're a necessary evil. So that's, you know, I just feel you there. Yeah, it's something that to grin and I guess and just bear with it. And then on the other side, as far as like knowing when to unplug, I think I've done a lot better. Like I always honor the holidays. I mean, yesterday, obviously, it was a great holiday and I, I didn't work at all on Memorial Day. So maybe I push it too far with Flag Day, but I, I do enjoy taking time off and having that. But not to say I still most entrepreneurs do find themselves working Sundays and evenings because basically our, we're never turned off. We don't punch a clock and really we're in, in charge of making sure we get paid and, and that our people get paid. So it's tough, but I think over time you kind of learn how to deal with it. I think it's in a way, I almost think it it could be easier if you have a family because your family demands attention, you know, after work and, and you, it's easier to unplug. I'm single, so it's really up to me whether I unplug or not. There are some things I think you just learned with time. Okay, so let's talk about your babies. Oye Intelligence and Nativa, which are your two agencies that you have with your partner, Natasha Pongones. Is that right? Did I pronounce her last name correctly? Yeah, you got it. So tell me about the agencies. What is Oye Intelligence and what is Nativa? Sure. So I'll start with Nativa because Nativa was born first. So Nativa evolved from the first company I started back in 2008. So technically it has its origin in 2008, but it really evolved a few times until we really understood what our market was and how we could differentiate ourselves. So I'd really say in 2010 was the first year that we really figured out what our market mix was. So from that year on, basically what Nativa does is we help brands that want to communicate with Hispanic audience. And over the past couple of years, it's evolved into now we're seen more as a multicultural agency in general. And our focus is always on digital. So basically, any way that we can help connect our brands, which typically we work for consumer packaged goods or universities, government, we help them communicate with the Hispanic audience and multicultural audience on a daily basis, whether it's 
social media, whether it's uh, whether it's influencer marketing, blogs, anything digital basically is the way we generally help our, our brands connect. And then what we've done uh, three years ago is we realized that there was a, a need for better data on multicultural audiences. And we realized that we were using existing software, things such as uh, Salesforce, Crimson Hexagon, very powerful analytics tools, but they just really didn't do an adequate job when we were looking, in, in particular with the Hispanic market. We realized that there was opportunity for us to stop doing the manual things that we were doing as far as trying to manipulate data and using Excels and CSV spreadsheets and, and running queries on things and actually making a software program out of it and that would do it automatically. So in 2015, we launched a new company called OEA Business Intelligence. And this past year, we actually celebrated our, our best year for both companies actually in 2017. Congratulations, that's awesome. Well, thank you very much. It's been, I think, something we're really proud of because it has been difficult along the way to get acceptance as being a, a social listening tool that focuses on the, the multicultural market and provides deeper insights on what do multicultural audiences say. So for the most part, the easiest way for me to explain it is basically if a brand wants to know, let's say Coca-Cola wants to know what do English-speaking Hispanics say, what do Spanish-speaking Hispanics say, and how does that compare to the general market or the African-American market? And that's basically the insights that we give to our brands. That's a lot of information. You have a lot of power there. How do you gather this intelligence? Uh, primarily through social media. So Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, uh, the main channels. But then we also we also gather data from YouTube, forums, I guess the, the web at large, things like New York Times and all of that. We're plugged into over 100,000 different sources and we can add sources when needed. But for the most part, the majority, 90% comes from Instagram, Facebook, Twitter. So social media, for sure, has been the game changer for you guys. Yes, correct. And in the way it has evolved, I don't know if the word evolved is the correct word, but social media in general, I feel like it's just exploded, right? At a rate faster than we probably ever imagined. Like when it first started, it was just fun. But the fact is that the landscape has really changed. What do you think is next for social media? Well, I think the Cambridge Analytica has, is changing, I guess, the game a bit as far as people are more concerned with privacy than they ever were. And, and I think that things such as Cambridge Analytica are, are really good as far as showing just how powerful anybody's data can be and, and just you know how dangerous it can be as well. A lot of us have probably seen the commercials that are out there today. Facebook is basically apologizing you know, publicly on, on TV. Yeah, I saw their video. They have a documentary on Facebook. I don't know if you saw it. Uh, I, don't know. I haven't seen any recent ones, but I know there's just a lot. And if everybody's getting the email in the last few weeks for the, the changes to privacy policies. So there's a lot changing. I guess I, I don't typically try to predict what's going to catch on with social media. I do know that right now there is a wave of privacy and, and we're going to ride that wave. That does definitely affect you know my company as any company that, that uses data because the less data that's publicly available restricts the insights that we can pull and restricts the, the insights that we can give to our government organizations, to our brands that, that want them. Basically, that, that can provide better marketing insight. So basically, we just have to, just like every other company that's in social data, we just have to adjust and evolve with whatever's out there. That's how it is. It's, it's an ever-evolving game. So Absolutely. 
And I just read a Wired post that says the world has, quote, almost overnight begun looking at the field of data science, not as novel and innovative, but as intrusive and inescapable. What is your view on all of this? And do you find yourself having to defend what you do based on what's happening with Cambridge Analytica and Facebook? You know, I think that there's always a fear of change. I mean, there's a lot of there's a lot of naysayers about anything. So privacy, if you can get a scapegoat, so now you've got Facebook as a scapegoat, you know, and we're going to say, hey, this is bad. It's just easier to say that new things are bad. The way I see it is that the same thing with self-driving cars. When Uber did, unfortunately, have the accident they have with the uh, fatality in their self-driving cars, basically everybody was ready to say, I told you so, self-driving cars are bad, you know, all of that. But it, really forgetting that that is the f inevitable future and really, but people really just trying to prolong, you know, what, what we have because they're afraid of change. The same, I would say, with artificial intelligence. I, there, a lot of people are, are scared of, you know, everybody being put out of a job and the, the Amazon of business. And and it's really just, you know, people just need to evolve and change. And I wish people would be more open-minded. I think with age, people get more, I guess, sensitive to change, things like that. But it's not to say, I mean, I have noticed that also younger people as well are saying, hey, I'm concerned about my privacy and, and coming out and grows on that. So people are just afraid of change. But I think you just have to go with it and know that these things are all all coming. So enlighten us a little bit. How does data help improve our lives? What are the positive sides of collecting this data that companies are now able to collect through social media? Our brands, for example, are able to provide more authentic experiences for their customers. Basically, what, what our brands typically want to do is they want to find multicultural influencers and they want to talk to them. They want to, they want to start a conversation. They want to have this open line of communication that they've never had before. So with our ability to find multicultural consumers on any channel based on what they say, what they talk about, with anything that's publicly available, we're able to connect them and basically give this other audience. Whereas before, the message was more broad and it was more like, hey, this is our advertisement. Here you go. Whereas now it says, hey, we've identified that these are English speaking Hispanic consumers. We have a better idea of what they're interested in. We know what language they prefer to speak. We know their likes. We know their interests a lot better. So that's what, what the power really is of especially Facebook, which really has so much of this uh, interest data and, and the psychographics that really help define who someone is and what they might be interested in. These things are all, I guess, in a way taken for granted now, but without it, we'd all be seeing the same advertisements, basically just like we were watching the Super Bowl. But when now when you have better targeted data, you get to see ads that are actually more relevant to you. And, you know, as Mark Zuckerberg had to explain many times, you know, ads are a very necessary part of social media because without it, they would have to charge money to use Facebook or Instagram or any of those. So uh, there's no way out of receiving better advertising and uh, unless you're willing to pay for it and pay like a monthly fee to use social media tools, which most people have said that they would not. So that's one of many ways, but it's basically providing better content to the people, just more directed content. But also it's not as profitable for companies like Facebook or Instagram or Twitter to charge users. It's a lot more profitable to have advertisements. I mean, I'm just being honest because that's what the research shows. And maybe that's not what all of these companies want to put out there, but it's true. And if we don't like it, we just don't have to use them, right? But we don't want to do that because we don't want to lose our connections and we don't want to lose our friends and we don't want to miss out on what's happening with what's her name over at the on the other side of the world. So it's probably not going to go anywhere. 
Absolutely right. Facebook and all these social tools are, are very ingrained in, in us now, and it would be hard to actually disconnect. So, and to your point about the cost of it, I don't know what it would cost to be as profitable for Facebook, for example. Could be as low as $10 a month. It could be $100 a month. And at some dollar amount, it would make sense for Facebook, but it probably wouldn't make sense for the consumer who is used to paying zero per month. So going back to the whole Cambridge Analytica scandal with Facebook, do you honestly think that this incident will have a lasting effect on the way that companies manage our data? Will it actually change things for the better or not? It will change things for the better in that basically it was kind of the wild, wild west as far as how you connected and, and the way that Cambridge Analytica was able to gather the data they were. It was very much at the at the onset of when Facebook was trying to figure out how to do apps correctly and all that. And they weren't thinking about how people may use it the wrong way. So I, I don't think there was any, I guess, intentional wrongdoing. I think it was all just basically negligence. And people will always find a way to, to do something. We'll always innovate. If there's a way to make money, they're, they're going to do it. So this won't be the last time that something like this happens. But what they are doing, and which does make it a lot more secure, is they really there's a lot less data that's publicly available on Facebook or Instagram. Facebook was always pretty secure, but they did have these loopholes with as many apps that are able to log in with Facebook. There's There was ways for Cambridge Analytica to access information that they shouldn't have. But now with, with Instagram, for example, our tools, it used to be, in, in any social listening tool, used to be able to get public uh, profile information. But now we're limited just to hashtags. So basically, we can search something only on a hashtag that's mentioned, but we won't be able to gather any individual data about the person that mentioned the hashtag. So it is changing, but I don't think we've seen the last scandal, I guess. I think there's a number of them still out there. Sadly. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, as long as there's innovation, there are going to be mistakes. And I feel like that's just what's bound to happen. I feel like we're always playing catch up when it comes to regulation. And usually this is what happens. Somebody does something wrong and then somebody else apologizes. And then the government goes, all right, all right, let's write a law about it. So mm -hmm. <laughs> I, I'm with you. I don't think this is going to be the end of it. And as long as we continue to put our information out there, that's the risk that we take. And for most of us, it's a risk we're willing to take because of the benefits of being connected. Yep, that's true. I'm interrupting this awesome episode to ask you a favor. Will you take a few seconds to leave a review? Tell me what other topics you would like to hear on the show. It takes less than 30 seconds to write a review and you can help change lives. Okay, I mean, that might be an exaggeration, but that's the kind of impact that Diferente is all about. A brighter outlook, a different perspective, all of this can be life transforming. Moving into another point, I want to talk about the opinion that you wrote that was published in the Phoenix Business Journal. And we'll post a link to the whole piece in the show notes. But you wrote this to contest another opinion piece written in the same paper. Can you tell us a little more about what inspired you to write this? Sure. So I was just catching up on my reading just with like in the evening, basically, I was, last thing I do. And I read this article basically criticizing diversity in tech and basically criticizing and saying that any group that is, for example, women in technology or girls in tech or African-Americans in tech or, or not even just tech, but any kind of 
business program that is motivating towards either minorities or gender or sexual preference should be disbanded. And basically, there's no need for it. It's bad. It segregates. Basically that, that also there's no importance for getting mentors that might be of ethnicity or, or gender that you might be from. As one of my peers commented, probably would have fit better in about 30 years ago in the business journal. But so it was really surprising that it actually was published. And I've spoken to the business journal about that surprise. And, and they explained to me that basically it is the op-ed. And they felt that this gentleman who wrote the article felt strong about his opinion. And, and they published it because they wanted to give a fair say to everybody. So basically, I read the article and I just kind of stopped what I was doing and took the next, I think, three or four hours, and I just stayed up and I just wrote this piece. And it really just contests basically everything he says. Everything that the gentleman wrote was misguided. There was no data on what he put. There was no facts. It was really just his assumptions. His what I guess his he put his preferences in the, in the paper. He made it sound nice, but there really was no backing to it. So basically what I did is I wrote the piece, and then I talked to a few of my colleagues that helped me support it with uh, more data. I have friends that work with the uh, Chamber of Commerce. I also have friends that are economists here in Phoenix, and they helped me put some actual numbers to it and showing that uh, I, don't, I don't have the numbers at the top of my head, but basically there was an immense study that went on 2017. It looked at, I think, 100 of the top businesses like uh, Fortune 500 companies and other large companies in, in Arizona. And the ones that had any kind of diversity program or support program that supported other minorities or genders, and all of them had economic impacts that was substantially over what they would have gained if they hadn't done anything at all. There was just no doubt to what these numbers were showing. And so basically, I outlined all these numbers about the jobs that they create, the lives they impact, the dollars they lead to in sales for the companies that in implement them. And anyway, they published my article. I put a longer version on my LinkedIn because obviously with the newspaper, you're limited a little bit with the space. But uh, it was just something that you know I really felt strongly about just because of how wrong it was. And I really just wanted to tell the world my take on it and I think a lot of other people's takes on it. I want to read one of the points that you made in this piece that really just made me want to drop the mic for you. <laughs> and it says, quote, from the outset, the article references the Declaration of Independence in that all people are created equal. It is citing a document that was written in contradiction to this equality statement, as it was during an age when a white man had the ability to legally own another individual slavery, and nearly 150 years before women would permanently obtain the right to vote. His inclusion of this is fitting in that the points the author makes are also misguided. And then you go on to discuss how his viewpoint had little, if any, factual evidence behind it, and you top it off with your own research and findings, which I think are so helpful for anyone who doubts that diversity and inclusion are still a major topic or major topics of importance in any industry, especially the tech world, right? I mean, do right. you find that you are constantly having to defend the importance of diversity? Fortunately, I think his opinion is in the minority. But I will say that there are a significant amount of people that just don't say anything, but do believe as what this gentleman wrote. And, and they truly believe that people should just get over the sexisms, the racisms, and any other ism that's out there. And basically, as I mentioned in the article, that 
that these things aren't relevant anymore, that people shouldn't be held back anymore, that basically African-Americans should have just as easy a time getting a tech job as, as they should. It's really just not the case because if we forget those things, then we are being ignorant to the fact that what these people went through, the background that, that people come from and the stereotypes that people are placed into as they apply for jobs or try to even just grow up and survive in the places that they come from. And to put everybody on equal footing and say that let's just forget the isms and the, like I said, it's just, it doesn't make any sense. Well, it's a very simple-minded approach to just saying, hey, just dust your shoulders off, all right? You, you'll be okay. It's not admitting to your own privilege, which we all have our own privileges, but the people that say that diversity and inclusion are holding us back are not putting themselves in the reality that they are more privileged than some of these people. Absolutely. It's the easy way out. It is something that, like I said, a lot of people won't say that, but they feel that way. And I think you do see more people feeling that way ever since Trump got into office because here's our, our leader of the country that can say basically whatever he wants without necessarily having any backing behind it or any data behind it. And he's called out on almost a daily basis in what he says that's incorrect, but it doesn't make a difference because he said it loud enough. And there's a lot of people out there that are in the same way as if you just say something loud enough, and then some people will believe you and you can have this feeling that it doesn't matter where you're from. You can have this feeling where, hey, dust your pull yourself up by your bootstraps like I did, you know, even though I'm privileged. So that's kind of how I think about it. Yeah, I think we all have a little bit of privilege. No matter who you are, some of us, for the most part, have to recognize that we have our own type of privilege and we don't all have the same background and the same experiences. Therefore, we kind of have to get to know other people's experiences before we can actually make an opinion like that to say that we should just pull ourselves up by the bootstraps and everybody should. Therefore, because I was able to do it, you should be able to do it. And that's the kind of mentality that I think a lot of people have. And I mean, yes, it's true to a certain extent. If I can do it, why can't you? But not everybody has the same opportunities. And I think that's probably the key word, right? Opportunity. Right. Yeah, you're totally right. So I always want to learn something new. And I want to ask you, can you give us some practical advice on marketing and analytics? Absolutely. We got a lot of inquiries for people asking if, if we can do research on specific topics. And a lot of times there's not enough data out there to really make any meaningful insights because a lot of the companies just don't have enough people that talk about them. So there's just not enough data out there. So I think a lot of times you can really get basic insights or get a pulse on what people are saying about your brand or about your industry really just by using search.twitter. And it's just a, a free tool within Twitter that I've always used and always recommend. I still use it today because search.twitter is easier than anything. If you want to find out what are people saying about your brand today, that's just where you go. And you can also just to check volumes. For, for volumes, you know, that's the easiest way. Rather than logging in anywhere, doing anything, just go to search.twitter, find out. You can see if 100 people posted in the last 10 minutes, it's probably a popular topic. But if it was the last post was in November 2016, then it's probably not a very popular topic. So there's not going to be any data on it. Uh, you don't really want to waste a lot of time researching the topic. You probably need to change what your keywords are for your market research. So as much as you can do in that front using free tools like that, you'll kind of get an idea of, of what the conversation's like before you spend any money with a market research company such as mine or, or any other one. Uh, I always recommend that. That's really good advice. Start with the free. <laughs> yeah, no, free is always best. <laughs> so 
Another question for you. In your opinion, what is the most important investment a business should make in their online marketing? A lot of it is really just being there, having the presence, even restaurants, any kind of small business. I think just having a presence on social media like Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, some of those things. I mean, some of them are more relevant for certain industries than others. But I think having that presence, even if you aren't able to maintain it on a regular basis, is really just a sign to the world that you're kicking and screaming. Like you're in business, basically. For example, if you were going out to dinner over the weekend, if you wanted to check if I should go to this restaurant, you would probably check their Facebook page. Because the reason that most people do that is because they know that the website might not be updated and they may have gone out of business or who knows, because that tends to happen in restaurant business. But the Facebook data or the Facebook page, if you see that they posted their special over the last couple of days, you know that they're in business. So it's, it's a good way to kind of put your bat signal out that you're alive and kicking, basically. What has better ROI in your experience, Google AdWords or Facebook ads? I would say social media ads in, in general. I would say anything that in particular has to do with either influencers or video are really the, the two most trending things right now as far as delivering ROI. The way that we measure ROI for our clients mm -hmm. is based on how many impressions and how much engagement they get. So those are the main things that we look for is what was the cost per engagement and what was the cost per thousand impressions. And we measure the ROI for our brands based on what they would have had to pay if they were going to buy that same amount of engagements or that same amount of impressions via their Google ads or via Facebook ads. And one more question. Let's say I'm an entrepreneur and I don't have a lot of capital to invest in market research. I'm asking for a friend, by the way. <laughs> What are some free or cost-effective strategies I could implement to start learning about my target audience and market? There's a lot of tools that will let you get a free sample. I mean, even our tool will give you a free sample. And usually it'll be like a week at a time or it'll give you a, a sample data set that'll allow you to get something. So you have an idea if there's anything there, kind of how I was mentioning search.twitter before. So I think there's a lot of tools that, that are kind of built on that freemium model. So you start off with something simple and free and then Ideally, they like to show you that has value and get you to the purchase level and one of their plans sometime soon. I would really say start off with Google search, see what, what are some of your interests as far as the things that you're trying to measure and see who will give you a free trial or who will give you a free data set and start with there. All right. So I have two more questions for you that are more personal. Number one, what is your passion? And number two, how do you define success? I guess my passion's always been for advertising in general. When I was a kid, I remember going to Chicago and I was from Columbus, Ohio, never really been to a big city. And I remember just being blown away seeing Spanish advertising in Chicago. It was something that was just eye-opening for me. It was just like, because I remember being baffled, like who would understand Spanish? Because I'm coming from Columbus, which is only 4% Hispanic and then going to a major Hispanic market like Chicago. So it, it didn't make sense to me, but I always knew that I, I liked advertising. I was always staring at the billboards, trying to figure out what was a message people were trying to, to put across and just curious about ads in general. So always had a passion for marketing and advertising. And I think I always will. And Success is really defined for everybody a different way. Like for me personally, it's really, I enjoy employing people. I enjoy being a, a provider in a way. I feel successful in a way that I'm able to provide jobs through my companies, but that's the way I currently I've measured success. Oh, that's sweet. I like that. Why does it always have to be a white picket fence? Have you noticed that? <laughs> Why can't it be a brown picket fence? <laughs> <laughs> 
I think it has some history behind there. I mean, probably way back in the early 1900s, but I, I'm not sure. It's a good point. <laughs> Something to think about for next time. <laughs> <laughs> Deal. This chat with Eric left me with some great takeaways. Like if you've done your homework and you believe that the risk you're going to take is worthwhile, then go for it. Don't let other people's doubts creep into your confidence because you might be letting a great opportunity pass you by. Another thing he said that left me pondering is that if you say something loud enough, people will believe it. And that can be really bad when the person saying it is just spreading misinformation. So then who can we trust? This is why I try to get my information from diverse sources, not just one news outlet. I also really started to pay attention to the messages I see on social media, and I look for signs of clickbait. Clickbait is when you see an inflammatory headline to an article or video that makes you click almost inevitably because it sounds so awful or so unbelievable or even amazing. And this is why I always question the tone and source of my information. That goes for all sides of the debates, by the way. Conservatives, liberals, they're all doing it. Let's demand better from our news outlets. Bueno, pues, don't forget to share this podcast with someone who is as fantastic as you are. I appreciate your support and can't wait for next week. Thank you for listening to Diferente. If you liked this episode, let me know by leaving a five-star review and by sharing a screenshot of this podcast on Instagram or Facebook. Just don't forget to tag me at Adiferente Life so I can know you're listening. Hasta pronto.